Father in heaven, we do thank you. And as, as we just sang, Lord, we couldn't have a long enough life to give you all of the thanks that you deserve. Your, your love is deep and it is wide and it is higher than the heavens. Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise. And I pray this morning, Lord, have come here with hearts that desire to worship you. And it's not to say, Lord, that there aren't those hearts out there today that are struggling or are troubled or are facing life's difficulties or trials or sufferings. But we thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. And we thank you for being such a faithful God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. And Lord, now I pray that you would help us to learn, read, understand, rightly interpret, apply your truth to our lives. Change our lives, God, from the inside out. Sanctify us this day. We do pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we go ahead and stand? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where we will continue on looking at verses 1 to 5. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 to 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord, friends. You may be seated. I am not a math guy by any stretch of the imagination. I did like geometry and I did okay at geometry because it was visual. You could see lines and and whatnot. But uh, I'm going to attempt to teach you a, a basic math concept this morning. Ready? A plus B equals C. Huh? There you go. There you go. That's it. A plus B equals C. So, uh, uh, for instance, for instance, if you mix the right combination of flour and baking soda, salt, butter, white and brown sugar, vanilla eggs, and of course, chocolate chips, plus you bake them for approximately nine minutes in a 375 oven, this equals what? Chocolate chip cookies. Exactly. We we had a gal at our previous church who had the most amazing chocolate chip cookie. I mean, bar none. When her showed up at a potluck, you had to go get it before you got your food because they were gone. And when we decided to do, do a church-wide cookbook, guess what? She refused to put a recipe in the cookbook. <laughs> Here's another one. Studying hard for a test plus Taking the test will produce a, we hope, passing grade. Or in our house recently, even a driver's license. Getting a job plus doing the work will produce a paycheck, right? When water droplets form clouds, plus they get too heavy with more droplets, they produce rain. When USC plays UCLA, this produces disunity in the church. Such as with today's message where you... No, not, it doesn't produce disunity, okay? Skip that last one. But I want you to see three requests of Paul, two of which, when accomplished, actually produce the third. A plus B equals C. We're in the third and final chapter of Second Thessalonians, <clears throat> where Paul has asked for prayer for he and his ministry companions 
from their Thessalonian brothers and sisters there in the church. And his first request was that the word of the Lord would what? Spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it had been with the Thessalonian believers. And for that sermon, we focused on evangelism. We talked about the message of evangelism, the method of evangelism, and the means of evangelism that we should be putting into practice ourselves. Paul's next request that we looked at last week was that they would be rescued from perverse and evil non-believers. He then turned the tables and offered prayer for the Thessalonians that our faithful Lord would strengthen and protect them from the evil one, namely Satan. And now we continue with verses 4 and 5 where Paul wraps up his prayer with three requests which amount to two causes, if you will, that A plus B and a result. So we're going to start with the result, though, because that's where the scripture starts. Look at verse four. The result is this obedience, obedience. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command Now, we saw something similar back in chapter 2 and verse 15 where we read, So then, brethren, Paul says, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So that word, that letter, those traditions that were taught them by Paul and his companions. Now, let's let's first just mention what, what Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that the Thessalonian church was perfect in every respect. He is not saying they did everything absolutely right and that there was no sin amongst its members. And we know this because of what we're going to read in the, the following verses where indeed they had some few issues that Paul will deal with. What he is saying is that generally speaking, as a whole, the church has been following the commands of the apostles, of the apostle and his companions, people like Silas, people like Timothy, and the church has been doing their best to put the word of God into practice. And this is why Paul then can say, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Excuse me, this phrase in the Lord means that Paul is trusting the Lord that they will remain faithful to the Lord. The whole point of their obedience is because of their relationship with the Father and the Son. And there are other places in Paul's writing where he expresses a similar confidence. Places like Galatians 5 and verse 10, where he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. In 2 Corinthians 2, 3, He says, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Or Philemon 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Right? It's that excel still more principle. Now, before we go any further, let's ask a question just about the authority of the apostles. Because it's interesting here. That, that he is talking about that you are doing and will continue to do what we command, right? He didn't say what God commands. So, so we want to ask this question, do the apostles have the same authority as the Lord? Because, yeah, we don't have, you know, you don't have red letters of Paul or pink letters of Paul, right? And Jesus gets the red and Paul gets the pink or whatever. No, it's, it's not like that. Um, Paul isn't even saying, you know, well, well Jesus said this. So are the words of the Apostle Paul authoritative? Are they on the same level as God the Father and God the Son? Are they, you know, are they like a step down, a, a tier below? I remember a young man one time that when we were here previously at CBC who showed up uh, as a visitor and was in one of the fellowship groups. And he was, this was something that he had thought about. And he was struggling with because I remember him telling the group or telling, telling us that, that, that he, he, he didn't necessarily trust what Paul said. He just went by the red letters in his Bible. I, I believe what Jesus says. The apostles, uh, you know, 
prophet people, whatever. It might be on, on shakier ground. I just go with what Christ says. So, you know, another way to put this then is how do we know that Paul is an apostle? Now, by definition, an apostle is someone sent by God to be his messenger. It would be similar to a prophet, like an Old Testament prophet, whose words were authoritative, by the way. And he was sent by God to proclaim the truth of God. So you think about it, you have the 12 disciples, right, that were handpicked by Christ himself. And then when the disciples needed to choose someone to replace Judas, Acts 1 has Peter telling the others that there was some criteria for this person to be one of the 12 disciples to be another apostle. It had to be someone who had accompanied them the whole time that they were with Jesus, so that they too had accompanied the disciples and Jesus, from his baptism all the way to his ascension, and especially that they were an eyewitness to the resurrection as well. And there were two men that were found to be qualified. Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias. And if you remember, they cast lots and the call went out to Matthias. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. You can bookmark yourself there in our Second Thessalonians passage. But just back up for a minute to Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> you say, well, gosh, shouldn't we have uh, talked about the authority of the apostles back before we started First Thessalonians? Well, yeah, maybe. But uh, I thought we'd take this opportunity just because of Paul's words in verse about them obeying the commands of the apostles. Acts 9. So, you know, Paul obviously wasn't around Jesus' disciples during that time. Um, He was, of course, a persecutor of the church. And you might be wondering then, how can Paul be an apostle? Because it doesn't sound like he necessarily had that same that same criteria that they used to get Matthias to replace Judas. So so what about Paul? How can we know for sure that Paul is an apostle, that Paul is an authoritative messenger of God? In Acts 9, we read this. Now Saul, right? Saul was, of course, Paul's name before it was changed to Paul by the Lord. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue, synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, capital W, the Christian way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. And the man who traveled with him stood speechless Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now skip down to verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's speaking to Ananias. He says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me So that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. So we see here in Paul's case. Because he had that personal interaction with Christ Jesus. Who then spoke to Ananias about who Saul slash Paul was to be, 
we understand that he was indeed called by God to be an apostle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 9, Paul writes about how the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter, and then the 12 apostles, now including Matthias, and after that to more than 500 brethren, followed by James, the brother of Jesus, and all the apostles, now extending beyond just that circle of 12. And then we would read this in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, referring to himself, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yet Paul was an apostle. Paul also received direct revelation from the Lord, writing this in Galatians 1, verses 11 to 12. For I would, have, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul received direct revelation from Christ. Paul then went and spent three plus years in Arabia, followed by Damascus, to be instructed by the Lord himself. There's also that section of 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul speaks of his visions and revelations of the Lord in verse 1, and how he was caught up to the third heaven in verse 2, which is to say, from verse 4, paradise and he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak in acts 26 verses 15 to 16 paul is making a defense before king agrippa and recounting his experience with jesus on the road to damascus when he says and i said who are you lord and the lord said i am jesus whom you are persecuting But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. I think, you know, it just doesn't get more authoritative than that when Jesus is saying these things to you, when he has appointed you to these things and that he will continue to appear to you. All of this to say Paul's words are just as authoritative as any other Old Testament prophet or Jesus's very own words. Amen. Let's get back to our text, back to our text. And, And now let's just kind of be briefly reminded of how the Thessalonians were keeping the commands of the apostles. For instance, if we were to go back to 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, Paul commends them for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father. So three things that they were doing in obedience. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, You also became imitators of us. And of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, right? Because of their obedience, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth, again, in obedience, so that we have no need to say anything. You're doing the right things. In chapter 1, verse 9, he remarks how they, quote, turn from idols to serve a living and true God. That is a tremendous act of obedience. And in chapter 2, verse 13, how they received the word of God and accepted it. In 2.14, they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus and endured sufferings as those other churches did. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, may the Lord cause you to increase And abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you. That implies if he's telling them to increase and abound that they are already doing that. And then in chapter 4 verse 1. Finally then brethren we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. That as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Just as you actually do walk because of obedience. 
that you excel still more. And again, something they were already doing, they were walking in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it talks about how they have the love of the brethren. In chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Paul says that their faith is greatly enlarged, and their love for one another grows greater, also commended for their perseverance and faith amidst persecution, suffering, and affliction. Paul has also given them many other instructions towards obedience in these two letters. And of of course, the commands of of God are found throughout the Scriptures, right? From Genesis to, to Revelation. In fact, in Genesis, we see God's first command to us, The human race. What does he say? But be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we didn't have a problem with that command, did we? We had a problem with the next command, the next one, when it says that from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat from it you shall surely die. That's when we mess things up, right? In the Old Testament alone, there's some 613 commands, including, of course, the Ten Commandments, nine of which are reiterated In the New Testament, the only one that's not is the keeping of the Sabbath, but we understand that we have our Sabbath rest in Christ. David describes the whole of God's word as a command. He says in Psalm 19 and verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Referring to scripture. Jesus first commanded people in Mark 1.15 to what? Repent and believe in the gospel. He also tells us in Matthew 22 that the two greatest commands are, of course, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind, and again, to love others. And Jesus also told us, his followers, that we are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that he has commanded us. It's interesting because the CDC reports that 20 to 30 percent of people with chronic health conditions never fill the prescriptions their doctors write for them. While some 50 to 60 percent don't follow the doctor's orders for taking their meds. And you think. If we have these kinds of obedience issues where our health is concerned, our physical health, I guess it makes sense that we would struggle all the more with our obedience in spiritual matters before the Lord. Oswald Sanders has said, The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. Amen. Let's move on to Paul's second request which is that first cause. So we've got the C. Now let's back up and see what A plus is. It's this, the cause. Hearts that love God. Look at verse 5 back in 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Now Paul used this same word direct back in 1 Thessalonians 3.11 when he said, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. It means to, to guide straight towards someone or something. In this case, Paul is praying that the Lord himself will guide the hearts of the Thessalonian believers into the love of God. It's not that God wasn't already doing this. In fact, Paul uses an aorist verb in the Greek, which is is a simple past tense verb. In other words, this is an action that has already happened and that Paul is praying will continue to happen. God directing the hearts of the Thessalonians into his 
love. <clears throat> yeah, the first thing that popped in my head was, was I thought of those cartoons, and you, you see in a cartoon the, the love canal ride, right? At like an amusement park, um, where, where there's, you know, a couple in a, in a little boat, and it takes them through that giant heart tunnel, you know, on, on the ride, and, and they're being directed by this waterway, and the force of the flowing water is guiding them into this tunnel of love. God directs our hearts into His tunnel of love, right? He has us on a track and he removes the obstacles and he draws us ever deeper into his love. Writing about love as one of God's attributes, Wayne Grudem in his, his systematic theology book, it's one of those books you get at seminary, you know, one of those thick ones. And he writes this, he says, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. This definition understands love as a self-giving love for the benefit of others. This attribute of God shows that it is part of his nature to give of himself in order to bring about blessing or good for others. I think that's an excellent definition. Another theologian, another one of those thick books that, uh, that they gave us at seminary, a guy named Millard Erickson, and he, and he adds this. He says, the basic dimensions of God's love to us are benevolence, grace, mercy, and I found this interesting, persistence. By benevolence, he writes, we mean God's concern for the welfare of those whom he loves. He unselfishly seeks our ultimate welfare by grace we mean that god deals with his people not on the basis of their merit or worthiness because frankly we have no merit no worthiness right what what they deserve but simply according to their need in other words he deals with them on the basis of his goodness and his generosity god's mercy is his tender-hearted loving compassion for his people it is his tenderness of heart toward the needy And persistence is about God being long-suffering, withholding judgment, and continuing to offer salvation and grace over even long periods of time. End quote. In his consummate work, no one like him, it's even thicker, theologian John Feinberg says God's love is one of the grandest themes in all of scripture. In fact, the Bible in many ways is a love story, a story of God's love for all his creatures. Amen. And he goes on to cite God's deep love for us by paying for our sins himself through the sacrifice of his very own son so we wouldn't have to pay for them. Paul Washer writes, quote, he is the very essence of what true love is and all true love flows from him as its ultimate source, end quote. Love is characteristic of the triune Godhead, is it not? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches us that God is love. And then we can only love because God first loved us. John 3.16, that classic text for God so, what? Loved the world, his creation, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And along with the love for the world, God has a special love, of course, for those who trust, for those who follow, for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that obey his son. As John writes in 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God. And such we are. And believers, believers, friends, you and I, we also have the blessing of God's love abiding in us. Through us because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and of course the kind of love that we receive from god and the kind of love that we are to give to others is that classic agape love the kind of love given to us by christ in that self-sacrificial way as he went to the cross on our behalf not concerned with himself 
concern for us. Out of his great love for us. As Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I've often said, I, I think, like for me as a dad, for instance, or as a husband, it, would, it just wouldn't even be an issue if I had to give up my life for my wife or children. It just wouldn't even be a second thought. But could we do that for just one of our friends? Could we do it for somebody else? Could we do it for somebody like a rebellious sinner who, who, who is our enemy even? Because that's what Christ has done for us. Even while we were yet sinners, wicked, rebellion against him, Christ died for us. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to you some of just lyrics from uh, just a beautiful song. One of my favorites, The Love of God. And because of time, I only gave you two verses. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'm like, we're going to get the third verse. Here's the third verse. Great words. When years of time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall. When men who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. And the chorus, of course, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Well, Paul's third request, number three, our B cause, A plus this equals obedience, right? Love of God plus this, and it's this, hearts that are steadfast in Christ. Hearts that are steadfast in Christ. Christ, again, back to verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And of course, the, the question there is, is what are we talking about when we say the steadfastness of Christ? What does that mean? So we've had this word before in our Thessalonians um, teachings. It's hippomone. In the Greek, it means to remain under or persevere. And it signifies a, a bearing up under something, a patience and endurance towards things or circumstances. Uh, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament says it refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. Can I share with you a humorous poem that illustrates this? <clears throat> It's called Two Frogs in Cream. Two frogs fell into a can of cream. Or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croaked number one. Tis fate no helps around. Goodbye, my friends. Goodbye, sad world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two of sterner stuff. Dog paddled in surprise. The while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at last, he said. Or so I've heard, he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam. Not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked. Then hopped out via butter. Friends, in other words, steadfastness produces results. A, love of God, steadfastness of Christ equals obedience. We saw this phrase um, or word for steadfastness again back in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 when Paul commends their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. In other words, Christ is steadfast. Amen? He's steadfast. Our hearts are to be directed into His perseverance, 
endurance, patience. We should look to Jesus as the example for how he bared up under difficult circumstances, to say the least. Trials, sufferings, afflictions. In fact, let us, let us just consider three respects. Three respects that Christ bared up persevered that we need to also emulate first regarding his temptation in the wilderness when jesus was directed by the holy spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days he steadfastly persevered and during that time jesus ate nothing oh man i don't know about you in our family we all get the hangry problem you know we get hungry, we get angry, right? So here, 40 days, I couldn't even imagine. I just couldn't even imagine. So 40 days, during that time, eats nothing. He puts himself in the greatest position of temptation so that, as Hebrews 4.15 says, he could be tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus then steadfastly battled Satan, donning the full armor of God, Especially wielding what? The sword. The sword of the Spirit. Because the sword of the Spirit is the what? Word of God. And that is how he victoriously battled back against Satan. To where Satan finally throws in the towel. He gives up and until, a, well he says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he, Satan, left him uh, until an opportune time. Realizing that that wasn't an opportune time. I'm losing the battle here. Using Christ as your example, you too have the ability, friends, to persevere and remain steadfast amidst temptation. We have that beautiful text, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that tells us no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to what? Get out of it? Endure it. Remain steadfast. Now, the second way we see the steadfastness of Christ is through the ongoing persecution of the Jewish leaders against Christ, right? Turn to uh, Luke chapter 4. Go to Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 23. Luke 4, 23. This is Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue. And he's just quoted or read from the prophet Isaiah... When he says this, Luke 4, beginning in verse 23, and he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. In other words, he's illustrating this, right? Look, skip down to verse 28. Verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things and they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 30. Luke 5, verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? All right, so we see another, another occasion uh, where they are just starting to lay on some of the uh, persecution. Look at Luke 6, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then skip down to verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. And of course, what did he do? But right then and there, healed the man with the withered hand right in front of them. Skip down to verse 11. 
But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Matthew reports in chapter 12, verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. And Jesus knew this. He knew their hearts. He knew how against him they were. He lived with this knowledge of how much they hated him day in and day out. In Mark 10, uh, verses 33 to 34, he's talking to the disciples, Jesus, and he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and they will spit on him. They will scourge him. They will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Now, I mean, that, that would be a pretty horrible thing, right? I mean, to know, to know for certain that your death was imminent and it was even fast approaching or that it would happen even on a specific day? Man, turn to Matthew 21. Backtrack to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23, Jesus has come back into Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple. And we get to verse 23 of Matthew 21. And it says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, now, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then lastly, lastly, we see Jesus' steadfastness all through his arrest, his kangaroo court trial, and his crucifixion. Even praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and asking his father, If you are willing Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And then even when he was arrested by the mob, he knew that he could call upon the Father to send 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. He was mocked. He was insulted. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was scourged. He was given a crown of thorns and finally nailed to a cross enduring a torturous death in isaiah 53 and verse 7 we read he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth that is his steadfastness because he knew what needed to be done he knew what he was called to do by the father like a lamb that is led to slaughter like a sheep that is silent before its shearers so he did not open his mouth could you or I say that or have, have, and not said that? Could you or I have gone through, through that and not said anything? Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, go to the right, towards the back. 1 Peter, right after James, before 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. 18 to 23. He's speaking of those in the church being as living stones. And then he talks about authority and how we're to honor authority. He says this, 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering 
unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, that's that steadfastness, friends, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously that is what being steadfast is all about and he himself verse 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness that by his wounds you were healed the love of god and the steadfastness of christ brings us to obedience I mean, this is remarkable, the steadfastness of Christ and that that we would be called to into his steadfastness. When you, again, just think for a minute of, of what he did, what he went through. And with this tremendous motive of of loving you. Of wanting to save you. Of wanting to forgive your sins. Wanting you to live eternally with him in his heavenly kingdom. And friends, that's the good news, right? That is the gospel that, that we are sinners through and through, wicked and rebellious. But God so loved us that he gave us Christ. That Christ was willing to steadfastly persevere through all of this. Temptations in the desert, three years of just getting hammered by the Jews, and then all culminating in a just a horrific 24 plus hours. That he did this for us. And then if you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you believe the truth of what Christ did to secure your salvation, that he went in your place. To the cross. That he took your sin and your shame upon himself. That he endured the death that we should have died. Out of his tremendous love for us. His steadfastness. He too was obedient to the Father. All for you. All for me. And if you would repent and believe. Turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. You will be saved. And if you, if you friends, if you have never done that, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, please trust in Christ before you leave here today. Today is the day of your salvation. Do not leave this place before you have done that. Do not leave things up to You know, well, I'll I'll see how things go. I'll think about it a little bit longer. Well, you know what? I still got I still got a lot of sinful fun to participate in. You know, there's always my deathbed. I can I can I can string it along a little bit longer. No, you can't. Because once you die and leave this earth, it is too late. It's too late. Here's the point I. I want to make with all of this. And it goes back to the title of the message, The Secret of Obedience. It's not really a secret. It just was a snappy title. You see, if your hearts have been directed into the love of God, and your hearts have been directed into the steadfastness of Christ, this will drive you to obedience. It will. A plus B equals C. 
And that will be what brings on the desire for you to obey God, that love of God and that steadfastness of Christ. That'll be the desire of your heart to obey Him. It will be what, what, what therefore comes naturally. Because prior to becoming a believer, it sure doesn't come naturally. But now, with the Holy Spirit inside you, it will. We want to bask in the love of God, friends. We want to persevere in Jesus' steadfastness amidst all temptation and persecution and suffering. And then you will have every reason, you will have every yearning to obey the Lord. And generally speaking, it's not, again, anything you will have to force. But rather, it'll be just a more natural result. A heart that loves God plus a heart that perseveres in Christ equals that obedient life for the glory of God. 19th century minister Nathaniel Emmons once said, Obedience to God is the most infallible evidence of sincere and supreme love to Him. I agree. Well, Matthew Henry concurs, the surest evidence of our love to Jesus Christ is obedience to the laws of Christ. Love is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Let's pray. Father, thank you, as always, for your words of truth. Lord, sometimes it really is so simple. And I'm often astounded at my own sinful, rebellious heart and why sometimes these things are so difficult, why it is so difficult to, to let my heart be directed into the love of God, to, to, Lord, be directed into the steadfastness of Christ, to be obedient. And, Lord, forgive my sin. And help us all, Lord, help us all to love you more, to look to Christ as our steadfast example, Lord, that will then develop a heart for obedience because of these things. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to put their faith in Jesus, I pray that right now, even while we are praying, they would pray their own prayer of repentance, their own prayer of sorrow of guilt, Lord, just to to say, Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus as the forgiver of my sins and guarantor of eternal life. Father, we pray these things this morning in your Son, Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.